minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank contributors to the show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Sinkavi, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author of Psychic Spellcaster, Rootworker, and Witch, you can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. She's a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And again, you can find her at TarotByGinger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Jeff Olsner. And he has a couple of books, a couple of audio tapes, poetry, music. All kinds of stuff. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Gary. And hello, everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what motivated you to, to do this kind of work towards, you know, this more nature-based type of, of work in poetry? When I started out um, in my 30s, I was having a series of dreams about books. They were really vivid. Um and I could see that they were illustrated, and they seemed to have different dimensions to them. And I could tell that there was a scientific dimension as well. But nothing really began to gestate from these seeds of dreams um, until about 12 years ago. I was sufficiently disturbed um, by what I knew about climate change at that time that I decided to do some some work where I brought together um, some of what I had learned at the Findhorn community in Scotland Mm -hmm. about attunement to nature and what I was learning about uh, regenerative agriculture and marine restoration. Um, and some of the, uh, the poetry and songs that I'd written that were nature-oriented and maybe had some degree of sensitivity to what was going on on the planet and put them all together into this book, which has become um, one in which uh, at the present time it's free on my website, jeffholstner.com as an ebook, It's called Attunements for the Earth. And just to give you a kind of a, a quick sketch of what's in it, the subtitle is Poetic, Musical, Photographic, Anecdotal, Climatic, Intuitional, Scientific, and Spiritual. So that's a mouthful. And um, my attempt here is to do as much as I can with my creative gifts to make some kind of response, some kind of response to climate change and in particular because of my interest in attunement to see what i can do to share how i've attuned to the earth and to encourage other people in their own way not my way or Findhorn's way to find that that sweet spot in them their easiest most natural way to feel connected and receptive to also attune to the earth and to begin to explore the possibilities not only of blessing the earth but also getting a clearer sense of how you might act and respond in the face of the environmental devastation that's happening. Mm. So all of that, and uh, <laughs> please, you and your your friends who are mm -hmm. your associates, any questions you all want to ask, um, I'd be happy to share. Interesting. So um, with the climate change, do you think that climate change is being caused by humans? And yes, I do, and I think it's very complex, and there are a lot of factors, a lot of tipping points that didn't happen, uh, haven't happened yet, but will, but that didn't start in our time, but began around the time of the Industrial Revolution with increasing carbon in the air. But my, my approach to all of this is not to get into debate with people mm -hmm. about the reality or unreality of climate change. It's just to point to the catalyzing intelligence of nature and say we can all benefit from connecting more deeply there, whether we believe in this as an eventuality or not. Mm -hmm. Which makes perfect sense. If we connect to nature more, we're going to want to nurture it more, right? Yes, sir. This is my hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do people connect with nature? Like, like you just mentioned, like, 
about 20 different things that you have in your book. So <laughs> right. Let, let's hear about them. <laughs> you know, through the expressive arts, for sure. Um, my wife is the photographer in the book, by the way. Yeah, you know, the way it's happened for me is a combination of things. But I was, um, I, have you all heard of the uh, the Fintorn community? Gary? I haven't, no. Okay, so in 1962, uh, uh, three people in Scotland were like spiritually guided to start a very small community on a, some sandy soil uh, near a large bay, Fintorn Bay in Scotland. And it gradually grew. They spent a lot of time connecting with what one of them called the living silence source. And over time, when there were needs um, in dealing with food supply and beginning to try to create a garden on basically very sandy soil, she began to tune in not only to source, but to the beings in the area, the nature spirits. Some people would prefer to think of these energies, uh, not entities, but we, we saw them at Fintorn as uh, conscious energies that um, that we could attune to. And devas, which some people would call the angels of nature, mm-hmm. um, the template holders for the patterns of the different uh, created things like trees, humans, all beings. Um, so whether that's so or not, it was our experience at Fintorn when I was there that there was actually some kind of cooperative interaction going on that was improving the, the well-being of the garden. And we saw proof of that when the British Soil Association came and checked out the soil in this really sandy spot and found that the garden as it was in a very primitive state had, don't know why, all the rare trace elements that normally you would find in an excellent garden. And in a few years after that, right around the time I came and a little after in uh, 69, um, a guy named Paul Hawken, an American, came and seeing the enormous vegetables that were growing there um, and connecting it with the fact that people were attuning to the energies there. He wrote a book called The Magic of Fintorn. So it had its more than 15 minutes of fame mm-hmm. for some time. And I, along with other things that were happening at that time, like some of the experiments that uh, Cleve Baxter was doing, sending positive energy to plants, and they were growing more uh, prolifically than plants that were receiving negative or no positive energy. These things were kind of in the offing, um, bringing a new generation aware uh, to awareness of the possibilities of connecting with the earth and benefiting the earth. Um, so all of this was happening for me at Fintorn in a really practical way. We'd stand out in the garden, before working, we'd hold hands. We'd get quiet inside. Nothing like a, you know, a nirvanic state of, uh, of complete silence, but just some degree of, of silence with an intention to connect with each other, with the tools we we're going to be working with, with the work we were about to do, and especially with that environment of nature that we were, we were all appearing in, and we would do this quietly with that intention and then we would let go of that intention and rest for a moment in the quiet and then we'd get busy and that experience for me was was a really tangible experience of feeling more at one with the people I was working with in the place where I was and so I followed up on that for the rest of my uh, life so far and I've had some experiences that I tried to share in the book that really brought me around to seeing the validity of this approach. Um, and I'd be glad to share some of those experiences. Love to hear them. Definitely. Okay, man. Let me know if I'm talking too much. You can't I don't talk to... too much on this podcast. All right. Okay, good. Well, one of these was that um, the woman who originally was one of the founders of Fintorn, Dorothy McLean, who died at age 100 in 2021, um, came to visit Leslie and me here in Northwest Arkansas in 1980. And she talked with a bunch of us and led us through some attunements. And it was neat. She asked us what we wanted to attune to. And people came to the decision to attune to the um, to the overlighting or the over um, the overarching spirit of the Ozarks where we live. So we all did that silently, and we took notes uh, as a way of kind of grounding our our perceptions, many of which were not in words 
but might have been in images or a sense of knowing, you know, you listeners, when you have experiences of connection with nature, they may be very different from, from each other. Some people um, experience it entirely in their bodies, uh, others' images, others' words. There's so many different ways uh, of feeling it. But anyway, um, Dorothy came and we she worked with us on this and we shared then our experiences of the spirit of the Ozarks. It was amazing how many similarities there were in what we did get. A couple months later, my wife and I were in a field, um, about two acres of really rocky field we cleared in the Arkansas Ozarks for mm-hmm. growing food, and uh, we decided we would attune to the spirit of the wind. It was a windy day, and so we closed our eyes, and when I opened mine after going into silence, there was a 12-foot tall about 10-foot-tall whirlwind standing directly in front of us. I whispered to my wife to open her eyes, and we both witnessed this, and then it whisked away as a uh, a real sleeve-tugger, a really convincing experience. And I've asked myself, Gary, why I had that experience, when at other times when I've attuned, it hasn't been as dramatic necessarily. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it was because I, I'm having a chance to share it with you right now. Hmm. Uh, I think it was the kind of experience that's meant to confirm something in somebody so they can go on and um, and feel encouraged hmm. to develop that, if you can relate to that. Yeah. So, so over the years, there have been different things, some less considerably less dramatic, some mm-hmm. even more so, that have caused me to be a very happy organic gardener um, here and to do a lot of environmental work in Arkansas um, and with some people that are doing really sensitive work um, around in uh, what's called regenerative agriculture and, uh, and ocean restoration at a time when these things are very much needed. Hmm. What is re, uh, regenerative agriculture? Yeah, a good example of that. Um, would be, you could find it in a book called um, Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth, about using um, plant biomass, plants that uh, that can be hyrolyzed or burned in an almost completely smokeless way to create something called biochar, which returns the carbon in these, um, in these plants that have been used uh, and pyrolyzed to the earth and can be used to fertilize gardens and to draw down carbon into the earth from these plants that otherwise would be wasted when they die um, and to intensify the carbon, uh, the reversal of the carbon cycle that we've screwed up. So that's one. Uh, all kinds of organic gardening that add to the earth rather than depleting the soil are mm-hmm. going to be found under that heading, but some are going to be more uh, effective than others, and I'm really interested in the field of how these things are developing um, all over the world. And in that regard, for people that would like to get quite a bit more specific about this, Paul Hawken, the guy that I referred to earlier, had um, an incredible book that he created called Drawdown, which is a sort of a, a collection of different approaches generally regenerative approaches or carbon dioxide sparing approaches and um, now has a website that I like I'd like your folks to know about called regeneration.org where there's an amazing clear visual presentation of a lot of these regenerative approaches which extends the different approaches to in in terms of uh, marine restoration Things like rebuilding uh, coral reefs mm-hmm. more quickly. There are some technologies that are being developed to do that. And saving, that. saving ocean life in, a, in an essential way right now. Things are so dire and so, so urgent right now that whatever people can turn to like this and mm-hmm. give some juice to, I think it's a very encouraging thing. Hmm. When you're attuning to the earth and like, you know, it sounds like, like the consciousness might be changing the soil and, and things like that. 
But also, you know, one of the things I've also always been interested in myself personally is plant communication, like plants having their own consciousness and being able to communicate with each other and just their connection to other consciousness rather than just being a plant. I've been getting more and more interested in that, uh, especially since reading that book, The Hidden Life of Trees, mm-hmm. and, and reading more about this topic um, and about how plants communicate under earth through root systems and mycelia. Yeah. All of that is just plus what I've been learning, uh, you know, from listening to Paul Stamets and others talk about um, mushroom growing and some of the ways that mushrooms can be used. Um, mycelium can be used uh, for bioremediation of different tox- toxic substances that are in the earth. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. And I'm curious about you. For you, are there certain plants that you connect with, um, say, more than others? Um, I want to say specifically, I'm just a guy who likes to be outside around nature. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. No, I find the beauty and peace in, in all of it. But when I do look at it, though, I don't see just a tree, you know, or whatever. I see something that's alive and connected to something greater and has a consciousness and awareness and knows what's going on. You feel that. Yeah. You see that. Yeah. I get glimpses of that, especially when leaning up against a big old friend, you know, a big mm-hmm. old is that something that's a pretty regular part of your awareness, though? Yeah, it is. It always yeah. has been. Since I was a child, it was something I think I recognized. I think as a kid, I looked around and I said, these things are alive, so they must be aware. Makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 it made sense as a child, you know, and it just has, I've never let go of that idea. I don't think it made as much sense to me as a kid. I think that came to me in my late teens. I went through a kind of a psychic opening at that point. I didn't know people went through psychic openings, so it was fascinating to discover that other people had and then some. Yeah. And it's also something, too, that now comes up on my podcast quite a bit with, you know, when I talk about like plant medicine and psychedelics and things like that, too. We're always talking about the spirit of the plant, you know, it's not necessarily always the chemicals, you know, the plant has its own unique spirit. That's creating all of this. I think this is exactly in line with the sense uh, at Fintorn of an underlying energy. Different energies, but not mm-hmm. separate energies. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other things I've also watched, too, about the, the mycelium, you know, they say, like, like that's actually because it can connect through electrical impulses. It works like a wiring network like we have in our brain. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because, like they say, like, like mycelium, you know, it seems like it's one of the things that could really help us save the planet, you know, yes. but it's also one of the things that started the planet. Really? Really? I mean, I, I mean, you know, the fungal, that, that type of plant life was the first type of plant life that started putting carbon and oxygen, tur- tur- turning carbon into oxygen and creating an atmosphere. Absolutely essential. Sounds like you've studied this, and not really. <laughs> you really more, perhaps you felt your way into it more. Huh? I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I have a friend who's in love with lichen. It's he's he's completely enamored of lichen, and has been explaining to me, you know, just exactly how important it is for the planet too. Mm. My, my love um, is all trees, but I have a special connection with um, the herb mullen. It's very, very strong, uh, and yet very soft. The leaves, and there's, there's a way in which it touches me, and uh, I feel like it's a teacher to me, a helper to me in some way. Hmm. I bet some of your pagan friends would really relate. Oh, absolutely! They, they all, you know, have the the plant thing, the idea of um, of the fae, even. We can talk about that, too. Um, it's not something that I wrote about a lot in my book. But um, the she or the, the good people or the people of peace, mm-hmm. the fae. Um, I was, when I was in Ireland, I had a couple of experiences I couldn't account for. 
and I was taken, I was taken <laughs> under I was taken under the mountain in an enchanted way and saw this silver city and now I wonder whether it might not have all been stalactites and stalagmites in a cave under you know but I was enchanted mm-hmm. spellbound in my astral body and actually because I hadn't asked to be there I I decided to come back to my body and I had to ask my spiritual friends and protectors, more conscious guides to help me back. That was how powerful the experience was. And then I discovered that um, historically and traditionally in the folklore, one of the abodes of one of the queens of the fairy tribes were was located right where my bed and breakfast was in Ireland. And this opened me up to doing some reading um, about the Fae. Mm-hmm. And, and so I got, I got interested in it again about 10 years ago and I was reading intensely about it. And I, I went over to the food co-op here, um, got out of my car, left the window open, but locked the car, saw a feather, a really large feather right next to my car with some, some kind of tattered decorations on it. It felt like a powerful and strange thing to see, so I slipped it in through the open window. And when I came back to the car with my groceries, the locked door, about 15 feet from the car, the locked door swung open. (laughs) And then it closed itself, and when I got to the car, it was locked. So I either was enchanted again and had a a hallucination, or there was a Mm non-ordinary experience, which was, again, to me, Gary, it wasn't just some kind of arbitrary, fantastic, glamorous thing it was a sort of sleeve tugger to get my attention and to get me connected more and that night i had a dream no it was more like a a in between waking and sleeping state highly vivid experience of being doubled by a wild energy which i knew had that signature of being um, one of the she Hmm. the next day in the mail I got um, a newsletter from my friend David Spangler, um, who's a spiritual um, teacher and author and who is real connected with Findhorn, lives in the United States now, saying that he and his friend Jeremy had been contacted by the Shi as part of a group um, that a star priestess of the Shi, who was one of a number that wanted to really connect with humans for the sake of the well-being of the earth, had gotten in touch with both of them independently and apparently it began to look like I was part of a larger contact. So I've been involved in that in a kind of heart way, wanting to be of help um, ever since the last 10 years or so. And there are a few books that were done um, on engagement with the she by David Spangler that are quite interesting. Um, now, that's all I know. Um just what I've read and the little I've experienced, probably nothing compared to some of your pagan friends who may have direct relationships right. that are more extreme. Yeah, I do have one guest who comes on has he like that's his he calls himself Ed the Pagan and he has a lot of experience with the with the Fae, the little people. Yeah, the ones that I've connected with don't seem to be little, but I'm guessing that they can change. Form. Sure. Uh, why am I interested in this? Well, I'm really, really interested in the idea of collaboration, cooperation, mutual blessing, mm-hmm. people working together and not just humans. And so that's that's really why I'm most interested in this. Hmm. So, what other? Um, like, 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 your book is like all about, you know, singing, like, you got songs and poetry and pictures. Yeah. So there's obviously this creative aspect to it, this, yeah. that you're, you're, you're tapping into too. Right. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. The book starts with, um, some letters that I wrote to some poets, um, in a writing group that I have that I, I made more general for the reader. Um, and the letters are about attunement and about writing and using um, using the writing of poetry and even songwriting uh, as a way of connecting further with oneself and nature. 
Then that chapter of letters is followed by a bunch of stories, such as the ones that I've just mentioned to you. Um, and then I share uh, a section of poems with photographs by my wife. Poems of connection with nature like this one. This is called Well Held, and I wrote it for my wife um, after a certain presidential election happened that she and certain other people considered uh, a bummer. Well Held. Longing for darkness alone, she retires her candle, going undercover to think back on a walk she took in the cold gray before dawn. Finding hoof prints set in freshly fallen snow along a trail they laid across the steep hillside in the woods behind their home. Now night winds heave the forest slopes. She hears the hills that hold her in their sweep. Well held in living darkness. Her longing becomes belonging. And so there's that comfort and peace and refuge that can be found in nature and in connection with nature there. And there was an effort through the poems and then also through a whole lot of different songs that I've written, which um, are presented in the book, uh, the ebook as MP3s that people can listen to. And in the, um, the printed book, when it comes out soon, they'll be there as those, um, those codes that you can scan with your phone and listen to. Mm -hmm. I've also added in the very same kind of, um, intention with the poems to uh, to deliver something more about connection with nature and inspiration. Um, and some of the songs relate to particular approaches to climate change. Um, so they're kind of like musical book reviews of um, Hawkins' book Drawdown and of the book Burn that I was mentioning about biochar and about designing regenerative cultures, a couple of other different books that I felt like have been really important. Um, where I've had some input with the authors and helping them at times to have time to write or to get their books out to, uh, to thought leaders too. Um, so in the songs, I've both gone, uh, gone on the way of sharing beauty and hope, but also sharing some of the, the specific uh, approaches that I think can be helpful and hopeful um, against this enormous, enormous transitional period that we're in. Hmm. What do you think, though, is the most helpful thing? Do you think it's awareness first? Yes, I do. And I keep thinking about it. You know, I keep I keep meditating and I I continue connecting um, with certain uh, spiritual teachers. Ramana Maharshi is one named Karoli Baba, neither one in the body, but I'm sure many of your listeners also have people that that are really precious, trusted, highly evolved human beings that they're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I keep doing that and wondering to myself, where can I find the right balance? How do I find the balance now between um, doing positive work for the earth and going deeper than that, just into the sense of everything being and being okay, deeply okay, and being able to radiate from that place too. So that's an ongoing dialogue inside of me. I'm not going to say it's a struggle. It's not so much a problem as a project, but um, I feel the, uh, the urgency of that project. That's interesting. I think, um, you know, there, there are people, you know, that look at this. I think the reason we're going through this crisis is part of a larger thing. My, 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 like the, the climate change and, 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 and all the turmoil that we're going through right now is the result of something greater changing. And some of it's a test to see hmm. if we're going to rise to the occasion, not just on the physical level of like, you know, using recyclables and, and like that char, you know, the char, um, what was it? Biochar. Biochar and things like that. But I think there's something else happening also. You know, like, and I hear talk about it with a lot of my guests too, about like a vibrational change, a consciousness change. Something is definitely switching. 
I truly believe more of us are opening. More of us are awakening. I truly believe it. What are you seeing along those lines? I see, what I see is I grew up in a world where we looked at things in two-dimensional. We read letters from left to right, and, and it, we, what, it read, what it said was what it meant. I learned math the same way. So, and, and history was what we were told. And so, so everything was put into this tight little box, you know, and you weren't allowed to really look outside of it. Now people's thinking has changed. They're like, okay, we went through all this stuff, learned all these things, but you know what? Some 50 years later, I find out, first of all, most of it was not true or inaccurate because they didn't have all the information at that time. And there's the other part, you know, there's like, this idea that we can step out of our own thinking and become like an observer and keep stepping out further and further from ourselves and get a better look at the big picture. And that didn't exist, at least not for me, 30 years ago. Other than isolated moments where that happened to me and I noticed it but didn't really have the words to put it in, you know, into some kind of memorable format, I... I think that that didn't start happening to me um, more intensively until I was about 17 or 18. Um, and then it seemed like some moments of openness began to, to occur. And the overall sense was, oh, I can only understand things from the present state of consciousness that I'm in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was a revelation, you know, and I, yeah. I, I, I don't know if, you know, if you also experience different kinds of special effects, but I started seeing energy fields and auras then without knowing, you know, that people really had had those experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, oh, my God, people really don't experience the world in the same way. There are all kinds of variations. So I did step out of the box a little bit. I was given peyote when I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. I was really graced. I think many people have experienced the first trip can be a very important one. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a learning experience. This was a real grace. You know, I saw the light that was each one Mm -hmm. and have not forgotten. Yeah. yeah. When you've been there, you don't forget. (laughs) No, no. I think that's one of the things that, like, you know, it puts a crack in the way we think, you know, in what we're taught. And I would say, like, I think not just me, but a lot of people that I talk to now is is really just opening up. Are you talking with a lot of people that are taking ayahuasca? I do talk with a lot of people that take ayahuasca, mushrooms, things like that. But also people that don't. I know also know the people that are having these experiences through kundalini awakenings. Yes, yes. So they're happening from all different things, not just ayahuasca, but it seems like they're happening from from ayahuasca, from kundalini awakenings, from people meditating, people having extraterrestrial contacts, people channeling. It's coming from all directions. It really is. And and many of those directions are ones that I've experienced. Um, not ayahuasca. But I ask because I keep meeting young people who tell me they've had real life-changing experiences. There. And some old guys like me, too. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful to to contemplate that. Coming back around again um, and seeing that it's being legitimized this time and less marginalized and, and even vilified than it was when Tim Leary was out there. <laughs> Do you no, think- man. This is this is happening at John Hopkins now and other places. Yeah, right? yeah. It's everywhere. No. Yeah, in some places it's, you know a legal thing where I think people can go and use these things for therapies. Absolutely. My, my own way has been, certainly has involved um, the use of cannabis, which I can talk about now that I have the <laughs> diagnosis of arthritis and, uh, and can happily walk by a friendly policeman and uh, get something that helps with the discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> I recently did an episode on, oh, I haven't put it out yet, 
on the psychedelic use of cannabis. Oh, no, I did put it out the other day. And, you know, it was about, like, using certain strains. You kind of put a blindfold on and listen to some music and just open yourself up. And it can be used that way. It can be used that way. And it can be used as a kind of pure design tool at certain points in in my experience, um, if I'm doing creative work, mm-hmm. I need to buckle down and not use anything except maybe a cup of coffee. But once the work has come to a certain point of coalescing, sometimes I can stand back from it and get some really creative insights. My primary path has been meditation. I've done a lot of Buddhist meditation retreats. But mm-hmm. if I was asked whether I'd grown more from that or being a husband and father, I'd have to I think I'd have to say this been in relationship that I've I've experienced the most growth probably. Hmm. That makes sense too. I think there is a balance between looking inward and what we can see and what we can see of ourselves through the reflection of others. I I see myself. It's really humbling. Sometimes how much empathy is continuing to develop here um, as I'm into my Uh. (laughs) mid-70s. So what is it that, um, you know, what what process do you see happening with with your work? And how how do you see that how your work is going to influence, you know, people you you work with the attunement with the with the earth specifically like how do you see that um going out there and helping people change our current situation well the book may give some some inspiration mm-hmm. my individual connections with people um whether i'm talking with them about attunement or whether we're taking a walk together and getting a, a, a getting more more connected with the earth here on my land where i I've done a lot of uh, of meditation, a lot of gardening. Um, it's a very energized place. Those things can help uh, in a small, humble way. And um, years ago, when I was quite clear that I wasn't going to be the Robert Frost or James Taylor of my generation and came to understand that about a thousand books come out every day, mm-hmm. um, I decided to, uh, to go right ahead and do it anyway. Um, and to Johnny Appleseed, my work, to not surround it with distress about whether it was small potatoes or did people ever connect with it in large numbers, but just to peacefully go about gradually sharing in different ways like this, hoping that it would have some kind of positive impact. And certainly it has for me because of all the incredible people I've met along the way. Hmm. Has any of your work been inspired by indigenous people's traditions like you know yes, native americans lots, and things lots. like that because they always are always praying to you know nature's spirits to get results yeah a lot and i've seen things too in native american ceremony that uh that has been similar to some of the things that i've seen in attunement where there's been um the spiritual lights for example that have have appeared and things like that as as different spirit energies have come into the sweat lodge there was a period where i was doing a lot of that when i was a younger guy and then i was kind of outpaced by some of my friends some of whom were part native american who really went much deeper into more scalding sweats and uh and beginning to do things like sun dancing and i tried to support that and so had some connection with the sioux but my my uh, one friend, two friends have been Native American who have been teachers. One was Susquehannock, and I, I write about him in my book. He was a spirit guy that I met when I was in my early 20s. And the other is a, has been a friend of over 40 years, and he's a Cree elder. And so I do continue to connect with this Cree elder. Um, but things kind of rubbed off on me without my necessarily appropriating language or ceremony. Um, more attitudinal, more of a sense, again, of, like you said, the aliveness of nature and also the power of ceremony. Um, and so there's some ways in which I don't do native ceremony anymore, mm-hmm. but I've I found my own ways of, for example, 
I have a place where I go where I've made a hole in the ground. and I might offer tobacco and get down on my belly and tell Mother Earth what I want to let go and put it right into the earth and ask it to be transformed. So, you know, people um, here for, we thought, 15,000 years, now we're realizing probably there are sites where being, where, um, they're being found that are 20, 21, or more thousand years old now in the United States. People have been here for a long time creating these um, energetic pathways, mm-hmm. broad pathways to the spirit. And I, what I've loved especially to do is to go to sites, um, and I'm sure that there are fantastic sites in New Jersey, old Native American ceremonial sites or sites like um, Fort Ancient in Ohio or the Angel Mounds in Indiana, both places I've been recently, mm-hmm. where there were solstice and equinoctial ceremonies and to feel something there, just like just like repeated campfires leave smoke on an overhang. You can feel something of the repeated energy of ceremony sometimes mm-hmm. and huge groups of people focusing intention. And I feel like there's a way in which I'm blessed by that, but there's some kind of portal of opportunity in places like that that I think a lot of us recognize is a place where we can also go to offer blessings and offer our love to the earth, maybe in a really simple way. Hmm. Like my particular core practice could not be more simple, and that's to simply touch the earth with love. Right. But it's an exchange of energy. It doesn't it's really. It doesn't necessarily matter how you do it. Really, I don't, at least in my opinion, it doesn't matter like, whether it's through ceremony or whether it's through reverence or whether it's through a gift. It doesn't matter. But there's just an exchange of energy between the person and the, the earth and or whatever it is, the spirit that they want to reach. Love seems to be the carrier frequency. It seems to be the medium of exchange. If there's affection or uh, a sense of openness there. That seems to draw draw us together. Do you believe in the concept of Gaia? Oh yes, I do. Yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure I've I've only touched a, kind of the the barest bit of of a, of a sense of Gaia in its immensity. But yes, I do. How about outside of Gaia? Do you think like stars have their own consciousness and spirits? I love, I love that idea, and in the few experiences I've had of kind of disappearing out of physical form and into the starry realms. They've been so ecstatic, and there's been a real sense of consciousness there, including, um, unless I'm just imagining all of this, of different forms of galactic, angelic sorts of consciousness that were just overwhelming. Yeah. I could feel about two or three seconds of it. <laughs> no, I definitely believe that is true i do i do and i feel that we're definitely you know observed and at times interfered with and at times probably helped greatly also by visitors to the planet many of whom may have been here for some time i tended to not form conclusions about that although i've done a lot of reading um, about extraterrestrial phenomena but I notice everybody else seems to want to kind of come to a conclusion. My intention is to keep opening up the field of awareness. That's a great way of doing it. Just like I try not to myself get too wrapped up in definitions of what an extraterrestrial, what a angel or what a interdimensional being, all these things, you know, we have different names for them, but are they, are they that different? We don't know. We, we're just labeling things that we don't understand, or you know. Yeah, that's I, I like that, and that certainly leaves room for further understanding instead of boxing it up again. Yes, and that's what we sometimes yeah. do. We get stuck on on that rather than looking at you know that there is something from outside that's trying to assist. Yes, and I see that um, you know even in um, in Buddhism, and I feel that. Um, it's interesting how Buddhism has helped me with this because it's helped me to uh, 
Buddhist meditation is so focused on um, letting go. Mm -hmm. Letting go of what you're of both uh, attraction and repulsion to things and just being with the moments. And, and that has opened me to those experiences of free mind, of free consciousness without, momentarily at least, without boundary. And when that's recognized, that's something that can be returned to, to some degree. Mm. So, and you will be, you, I know there are people out there listening to this who are already well experienced with these things and are smiling. <laughs> <laughs> well, Buddhist meditation has been a big thing for me too. As you can tell behind me, I have a big Buddha. I have Buddhas all over my entire house. I wrote a book on it. <laughs> really? What's yeah. your book? It is called Enlightenment Guaranteed: The Only Book on Zen You'll Ever Need. You studied Zen? Mm. Yes, I was uh, ordained lay monk for a little while. Really? Mm. Uh, was that on the East Coast? Yeah, I was here in New Jersey, in Princeton. Good teacher? You know, actually, I would say the Zen teacher, eh, but my teacher before that had a Tibetan teacher. Her name was Trime Lamao, and um, and she was a student of Trumpa Rinpoche. She and was fantastic. Was a, she was incredible. I was a student of Trumpa Rinpoche, too. <laughs> I was, I, you know, it's weird. I was at uh, Findhorn in Scotland. One day, and uh, in 69, I guess it was, and Trumpa showed up <laughs> with his bride, a 16-year-old woman named Diana Pibus. Uh -huh. And he had uh, eloped. He was friends with the folks at Findhorn that I was with. Um, they had helped him. They took him to a spiritual healer after he had his got The car accident? and he had a crash. Crashed into a joke shop. And they took him to a healer, and so he was friends. So he shows up here to get away from the press, who were very interested that this llama had eloped with a 16-year-old girl from <laughs> society family. And he had this kind of golden, kind of pervasive golden quality about him. He was playing a little drum, and I followed him around. So uh, about a year or two later, I discovered that a place called the Naropa Institute was going to be having its first session. Mm -hmm. And I went and I witnessed him teaching um, and had a little contact with him. And also um, had a, a, I studied with Ram Dass. There okay. Too. That's and great. Have you? And, and so that was the beginning of my connection with Buddhism and most through Trumpa. Mm -hmm. I was a shy Midwestern kid. They were going a little bit farther out than I was really constructed to do in terms of some of their they're drinking and partying. And so um, mm -hmm. later on, I connected with other Tibetan Buddhist teachers, first the Dalai Lama and some ceremonies there. And, um, and then in Arkansas, we've, we've brought different teachers here as yeah. well. Yeah, I've seen the Dalai Lama in New York. That was a good experience. You weren't at the Kala Chakra um, initiation in 1990 or, or 91, were you? No, no, this was much later. No. Yeah, I wanted to go hear him. Um, give a teaching in the middle way from Nagarjuna. Beautiful. Which is a common thing for him since he's supposedly the reincarnation of Nagarjuna. Well, to me, these are the big kids. <laughs> yeah, they're very big kids. <laughs> these, are the, these are the elders who can deal with the tragic element of life multiplied endlessly and still like Nelson Mandela and, uh, uh, you know, um, Desmond Tutu, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. these, are the kind of, these are the kind of people I'd like to, to grow up to be. You know? There are enlightened beings here. There are enlightened beings here, and each one of us has that inherently in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all have the ability to, and, and, and some are here and seem to... You keep reincarnating and coming back to try to assist us. It's that is amazing, really. You know, and and you know it when you're in the presence of one. You can't describe it, but you know it. I'm just smiling because yes. <laughs> and also I would say too that there have been times when my preconceptions of people have kept me from knowing it. Or maybe that's do. maybe that street cleaner. 
who always sang at the top of his voice, who seemed so wild and free, you know, when I was a kid, maybe he was one of them. Um, or just the lady down the block. <laughs> it was funny. Ram Dass told a story that I loved, if I might. He, yeah. um, he was saying he was talking to a group about seven levels of consciousness, and there was this sweet little old lady sitting in the front seat, smiling with complete recognition each time he got to the next higher phase of consciousness. And he just couldn't understand how she knew all this stuff. And so after he talked, he went down into the audience. He said, you know, I can see you're one of those who really know. You know, what kind of meditation do you do? And she said, oh, I crochet. <laughs> <laughs> As if, well, don't you understand? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, any, any, anything could be a meditation if you have the right intention when you're doing it. I'm sure. Wow. And I think that's an important point you just made. Because people out there might, some of them, think there are certain ways in which meditation is what you do with your arms and legs the posture and yeah and the breathing. maybe it's helpful but it's really something you do with your heart and mind and being um and you know um even the idea of being quiet to a tune that i was originally sharing can be turned on its head um i've noticed times when to connect with dynamic nature spirit energies it's actually better to be in movement and to be better to be like that myself, to be serving the earth in some way as a as a gardener or, um, you know, doing some humble weeding job or something. And I begin to connect more because I'm kind of matching energy a little bit more. Yeah. yeah that's, you know, now I would say like my form of meditation is almost like walking my dog. You know, I walk him like a couple miles every day and I live by the water. Cool. And, yeah, you know. I look forward to it every day. I miss my dog. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have to love chipmunks and Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a dog? Two cats and a dog all died at old age, and then oh. we had a grand, then we had a granddaughter, and we said, "Okay, we're going to be traveling now." Let's. Are you sure you don't want a dog? Because I can get you a dog. Oh. I know where to get dogs. No, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> I would love people to be able to hear some of the music. Um, it's there on my website. It's also in my book. But, it, you know, um, hmm, where do you want to go from here? What do you think? Like, we just told, we, I just brought up dogs. Do you think animals have connection to or tune to the earth also? really am amazed by the consciousness of, of animals as I watch them without thinking, without being amazed because they're doing something human. I'm amazed by the intelligence of a squirrel as it moves from branch to branch. Mm -hmm. The incredible precision. But yeah, um, I really think that some, actually some animals are mysteriously conscious to a really high degree. And how would I know how conscious whales or dolphins are. Some of you out there probably do. But um, I do know that there are animals that seem to me to be... Um... In fact, Ramana Maharshi, the great sage in India who died, southern India, who died in 1950, particularly was connected with animals and at one point said that um, a cow that he loved actually achieved full liberation and construed this cow to have been born as a highly developed being who was fortunate enough to spend um, its life as a cow with this sage. And uh, he approached the cow as that highly developed being in its last life. And um, he was a very no BS human being, um, Ramana, and I trust his perceptions there and some of the other experiences he had with animals his communication with animals. When I was in Assisi with my wife um, in 1975, 
Also, I had a sense and experience of connecting with animals that I felt like it was associated somehow with the um, with the energy that Saint Francis hmm. had instilled there somehow. Either that, or I just have a very, very active imagination. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, yeah, you know, I, one one of my guests who comes on says that um, that whales are the most intelligent species on the planet; that they're more intelligent than humans. I'm open. I, I believe it. I yeah. would love. There were more intelligent beings here than humans. I'm just sorry for how we're impacting them. Yeah. Well, I think it's all happening for a reason, though. I know you do, and I, I, I heard you use the word test, and I've thought about that too. Is there more you? I realize I'm not here to interview you, but I'm mm-hmm. curious. Is there more you'd like to say about that and the reasons that it's happening? I don't know. That's why I do this podcast and talk to so many people. I'm trying to figure it out. (laughs) But I really don't know. I mean, maybe we're not supposed to really know. There's that. You know, maybe the the point is, like, if if we knew, then the whole thing would be moot anyway, you know? When I was learning, um, doing, I was a therapist social worker with a a degree that allowed me to do therapy. And when I did family therapy, I learned an approach uh, to help couples that were fighting about something. Mm -hmm. Say, Okay, it's not the two of you against each other. It's the two of you against this problem as a way of reframing and allowing them to join each other to deal with the problem in some more constructive way. I think something like that is calling us here with climate change and the transition we're going through. How are we going to pull together here, folks? Absolutely. Yeah, and not fight each other and deal with this problem. I wonder if that's the thing that is is the thing that could end our fighting. One way or the other. Uh, I guess it will one way or the other, won't it? Well, I guess. I don't know yet. (laughs) I don't know either. it's, It's so tempting to want to be the little man with the big answers, but no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hmm. I was falling off my desk. So, um, before I want to thank you for coming on. And before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you, find your books, find your poetry, find your music? Thank you. It's all at... Um, jeffolsner.com and that's G-E-O-F-F just to confuse you all O-E-L-S-N-E-R dot com and that is where my uh, my book is and uh, plenty of music and some of my wife's photography and some other other goodies awesome I'll put so it later on I'll have a printed copy available um on Amazon and some other sites, but that's not quite happened just yet. Hmm. Yeah, I know. As I was checking out, I saw the, the the free ebook there. Yeah, I wanted it to be like that. Gary, thank you for having me on. And You're welcome. Letting, letting it be this two way too. I appreciate that. Anytime. Thanks for being on, and uh, I'll put a link to your website in the notes of this episode. And just hang on for a moment while I play the outro.
It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.